Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The USMCA deal was announced yesterday. Uh, Donald Trump had his conference in the Rose Garden, as we predicted he would, and uh, it was uh, the the victory lap, of course, breaking about an awful lot of stuff. And about an hour or so later, Prime Minister Trudeau had this to say about the deal. It's an agreement that, when enacted, will be good for Canadian workers, good for Canadian business, and good for Canadian families. It's an agreement that removes uncertainty for our manufacturers and investors and improves labour rights for all North Americans. Now, it would come as no surprise to most of us that not everyone agrees with the Prime Minister's assessment of the deal. Opposition leader Andrew Scheer and others, by the way, have been very critical about this. And now that the uh, the text of the deal has been released and people have had time to go over this and analyze this, uh, there are some concerns being raised. Uh, one of them, of course, uh, is suggesting that Trump wants to leverage o- over Canada-China trade talks. There's obviously some stuff about supply management that we can get into. I want to bring Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University and uh, get his assessment. Ian, thank you for uh, taking the time on a busy day today. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Well, first, before we get into some of the nuts and bolts here, your overall assessment on what was released. Um, I, I do support this deal because I have consistently, from the very beginning, said that the worst possible deal of all was not having a deal not being in a trade agreement. That's where I disagreed with Mr. Trudeau. He said, I'd rather have no deal than a bad deal. And I said, he's got it upside down and backward. No deal is the bad deal, the worst possible deal of all. And so even a, quote, uh, suboptimal uh, deal uh, with concessions in it is better than not having a trade agreement at all. Why? Because they're the largest economy in the world, 20 trillion GDP, one country out of 200 at the UN, and they account for 25% of the world. So we've got to be there. There's just no two ways about it. Our economies are so tightly integrated, it would be madness for us not to be in a trade agreement. That does not mean that it can't be criticized, that Trudeau can't be criticized. My fundamental criticism is, and one of the trade negotiators or former trade negotiators said the very same thing the other day, this took a year and four months. They could have had this negotiated in the first seven days. This was on the on offer sat at the first seven days of the negotiations a year and a half ago. So if we hadn't, I, I, I know we're speculating. I know I am speculating, saying, well, what if, what if? But, you know, I still think that we could have had a better deal, although I'm very pleased we have a deal. Uh, I'm, I think we could have had a better deal if we had not decided to go after and give speeches six blocks from the White House insulting Trump and comparing him to uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria or Putin in Russia, I think we probably could have got, uh, we would have had to give less concessions if we'd had a better relationship, and we could have probably got a a deal that was uh, better than the one we have. But again, I don't want to, you know, hide the fact I do agree that this deal is better than no deal at all, and so I'm pleased we did sign it. Well, let's talk about the auto sector, because that was one of the key elements. And I think you and I have, have talked in, 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 I think, pretty blunt terms about uh, the threat of auto tariffs, and, and yeah. I thought it was a real threat. I mean, uh, I, I, I take Trump at his word that, I mean, he did it with steel and aluminum, but yeah. uh, and, and I think if there was no deal by midnight on Sunday, we ran a pretty big risk of those tariffs. I think I, I completely agree with you. Um, I mean, there were two sort of, uh, they were correlated, uh, two uh, existential threats. One was no deal at all, and then the second was the, the follow-up whammy 
that he had promised to do, and I believed he was going to do it, which was to impose tariffs on our, on our auto industry, which every analysis I read by serious economists, econometricians, and so forth, showed that it would have been absolutely devastating to Canada. It probably would have pushed us into a recession. So, you know, we, that had to be avoided at all costs. And so we opened up the dairy a bit, so we opened up pharmaceutical, extended patent life protection. These, to me, are small costs to pay for such huge benefits of uh, saving the, the auto industry from being blown up and, of course, saving the Canadian economy from not being, um, from being uh, outside of the deal. So, uh, again, I, uh, I, you know, I can challenge him on certain things that they did um, and didn't do, but uh, I'm pleased that we have a deal so we have certainty for the next 17, 16 years, uh, because of the sunset law uh, provision, uh, we have certainty that will help foreign investors decide to locate in Canada, locate in the auto industry in southern Ontario, and uh, because they know they have a guaranteed market to export to in the USA. I, there's one comment uh, of, of all the economists I've read, and I don't know how many actually over the last 24 hours in, uh, regarding the auto industry, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, there is a quota, there is a ceiling uh, when it comes yeah. to the cars that can go in there. Uh, and and the, this economist suggested that, well, the, you know, that's basically tying our hands and who's ever going to invest in the auto industry in this country as long as there's a ceiling. Uh, and, and I guess on a philosophical level, there may be some merit to that, but it's a pretty high ceiling. Yeah. And, and it's also, from what I understand, negotiable at, at about the six-year mark. That's right. I agree with you completely. First off, the ceiling is 25% above what we're producing now. Um, and and I don't think there's any serious person who studies the auto industry who is saying that we're on the urge, uh, on the cusp of a takeoff, whereby we're suddenly going to soar by 25% um, from 1.7 million cars and trucks produced annually to something well north of 2.5 million approaching three. I don't see that happening. I don't see any evidence of that happening whatsoever, given the fact that we have a, a significantly lower productivity in Canada than the U.S., and we have higher wages in Canada relative to the U.S. Let's leave Mexico out completely. So I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And you're right, it's renegotiable. I think, if anything, it's it's almost a de facto sunset clause. In other words, it's going to force, it's going to provide one more motivation to come back and renegotiate the, the agreement if, for some reason, either side is aggrieved and sees something in it down the road in five or six years that they don't like and they want to reopen it early. And that just gives them a, a lever to do so. I mean, there was a time, uh, you know, when the big three we're investing in, in building plants here, but uh, that's in the rearview mirror now, isn't it? It is. In fact, I'm working uh, slowly <laughs> on a paper on the North American auto industry, really focusing on the uh, U.S. And when I say the U.S., um, what I discovered and when I started doing this research some time ago is that there's really two auto industries now. There's the North the Midwest auto industry around that proverbial word that we all know about called Detroit. And it's not literally Detroit. It's the upper Midwest of the U.S., and then there's the uh, the South, um, and the South uh, is forecast this year to surpass the Midwest of the United States in the number of cars and trucks produced. Uh, so there's ten states in the uh, SAC Southern Automotive Corridor. Um, you know, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, and so forth. These are the so-called right-to-work states, but it's not just because of right-to-work. I'm not trying to go down that road. Uh, I, I've been there. I've traveled through there. Their wages are lower. Their cost of land is lower. Municipal taxes are lower. State taxes are lower. Gasoline taxes are lower. Property taxes are lower. Cost of living is lower. And 
and their product and their uh, their productivity is higher. And and so what's happened is over the last 30, 40 years, 35 years, is more and more companies have been migrating to the deep south, and um, and this is where the Americans regained their competitive advantage in automotive. And so we say we're competing with Mexico. This is where I strongly disagree with Mr. Diaz. We're really competing with the deep south, where they're paying about half the wages that we are paying in the auto industry in the southern United States. Not only that, but those states also incentivize those companies, don't oh, they? big time, big uh, time. We'll pay for your infrastructure. We'll put oh. the sewers in. We'll build the roads. Uh, we'll give, give you, you tax-free tax for 10 years. And give you a tax-free holiday for 10 years, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, the, 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 they did a good thing on this, uh, but I wouldn't get too, I wouldn't, uh, nobody should get too alarmed. The, the big news is they saved the day. They've got 16 years of stability for the auto industry to go out and attract more foreign investment into Canada with the assurance that don't worry, uh, Mr. Investor or Ms. Investor, you will have a right of access to export your product to the U.S. All right, let's let's get into supply management. I know it, it's been a sore point for you and for many others yeah. for a long, long yeah. time here. Uh, as as we expected, the dairy industry is pushing back pretty severely on this and saying yeah. this is going to kill the industry. Uh, the government's responded by saying, "Look, at we're going to we'll, we'll subsidize you guys. You're going to get money. Don't worry about this." That's right. That's right. But but they 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 look at this as an attack on supply management. Uh, and and others are looking at this and saying this is uh, really a sign of what's going to inevitably happen here is that we're going to have to get rid of this system at some point. That's my interpretation, and I do want to disclose I don't consult to anybody anywhere. I'm not being hired by anybody to say this. I did do two studies on this. I looked at all the facts, all the statistics. I looked at what Australia and New Zealand did in getting rid of supply management, the fact that we're the only country in the world that even has supply management, and the dairy and chicken farmers are the only farmers that have supply management. Our own beef farmers in Canada do not have supply management. Our own hog farmers. Our grain farmers out in Western Canada that produce enormous amounts of grain do not have supply management. Our, our, uh, our uh, vegetable and fruit do not have it. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny subset of agriculture in Canada, and we're the only country in the world. So, I, I, so where I'm going is that does not mean that I'm saying let's declare war on farmers, not at all. I think that the business model called supply management is, will date it one day its demise from this point. Because, you know, I do agree with the dairy farmers. This is death by a thousand cuts because they were given, the American producers were given a 5% of the total Canadian dairy market access under this agreement. So were the European farmers under the CETA. And, of course, the TPP farmers of the other nine countries and the TPP have been given this too. So it, it probably is death by a thousand cuts. Uh, it just means that we're going to change our model from the current model of supply management, where we keep out foreign competition using high tariffs, we'll shift to the European and American model, which is we subsidize the farmers directly with a check. And some say it's not better, but that's the model that's used in most countries today. This isn't theory. I'm telling you actual hard reality. The Europeans are famous. My goodness, the French, subsidizing their farmers directly with checks. Same with the Americans. So I think we're going to end up going down that road. So these farmers are not going to, quote, vanish or disappear or be destroyed. The, the way they're compensated is going to change. Well, and there is a sense of inevitability. Uh, I mean, yes. those that have longer memories could remember that when Stephen Harper was negotiating trade deals, the European and even the uh, Trans-Pacific, uh, that was on the table. As a matter of fact, he was yes. pr he was proposing to phase it out, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And you're right, it was on the table. It just irritates so many different people uh, for different reasons. I mean, economists and, and policy wonks like me are irritated because it's just the antithesis of everything, not only that I've taught for 30 years, but of what we've known 
from 300 years of theory and practice. The richest countries in the world trade the most. They have open, liberal market economies. And the poorest countries in the world have closed economies where they regulate the price, regulate production. That was the Soviet Union model. That's North Korea. So why would we be going down a road supporting a model that is such a clear failure? <laughs> you know, when we can do, there's other models out there. So I, I do think it's, it's inevitable. It's going to be uh, phased out. And I'm sure that the dairy farmers, if they're strategic, and I'm talking the lobby association now, not literally the farmers, should be in there negotiating with the Minister of Agriculture culture and the, the, the government in Ottawa saying, okay, what can we do, what can you do to provide a transition, a bridge to the future so that our people aren't hurt? And I think that's eventually what they'll start uh, doing. i got a minute or two left here. Now, we're going to talk about steel a little bit later on in the show, but on a, on a, a philosophical level, uh, again yesterday in the Rose Garden, Trump reiterated yeah. his yeah. love of tariffs. Uh, there, by my count, uh, really, Ian, about a handful of people in the United States that think tariffs are good. Unfortunately, they all seem to work in the Trump administration. I agree with you. Wilbur Ross and Navarro and others like that. Yes. Uh, but there's, it, and, and it's really pushing against the flow here, isn't it? The, the whole is. idea that tariffs are good. Tariffs have been studied since Adam Smith 300 years ago. There is no serious economist in the world that I know of or I have read who believes that tariffs are good. All they do is raise the cost of the good, making it less competitive. Now, when I put it that boldly, how can anybody say, oh, this is a cool thing? The reason Trump likes them has nothing to do with the bad economics of tariffs. It's got to do with the first, he can do it easily without going to the Congress. So he can do it by executive authority, and he doesn't like being told what to do. That's one reason why he likes it. Secondly, he knows that nobody else likes tariffs, including Canada and Germany and China. And so he's got leverage over these countries when he negotiates with them. And so he, being the very self-important person in his own mind, likes the fact that A, he's got the capacity to, lever to uh, impose the tariffs, and B, he's got this ability to make us jump, to make us pay attention to him. So this is all about Donald Trump and Donald Trump's ego. It's not about the economics of tariffs. It's about the fact that he has a stick with which he can hit us, and the Germans, and the Mexicans, and the Chinese, and so forth. So he's not using this as an economic tool, he's using this as a weapon. Exactly, exactly, precisely. And he's not going to let this go anytime soon. No, because it, it yields, uh, sadly, unfortunately, it yields results. Uh, people do pay attention, they do say, okay, let, let's sit down and talk. So, you know, it's like the guy who carries a great big gun and you don't have a gun on you. Well, you're going to pay a, be very respectful to that person. I mean, that's just the nature of the imbalance. Uh, in that particular scenario. And in this scenario, it is the largest economy in the world. If he was a some minor economy and, and, you know, in the developing world, nobody would pay any attention to him. But it is the largest economy in the world. Every country that I've ever studied wants to do business in the United States, wants to access that incredibly wealthy market. And for that reason, they're going to pay attention to him when he starts to whack them over the head with tariffs. And, and he gets their attention very, very quickly. And so, and he likes to be the big, powerful guy out there, you know, bossing people around, telling people what to do. And so his uh, infatuation with tariffs is not because of the economics, as I said. It's because of the instantaneous gratification and the clout or leverage politically it grants him over other countries. That's why it's popular with him, I think. Ian Lee at the Smart School of Business. Uh, as always, Ian, thanks so much for this. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.